Chapter eighty four of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter eighty four Beauchamp. The daring attempt to rob the Count was the topic of conversation throughout Paris for the next fortnight. The dying man had signed a deposition declaring Benedetto to be the assassin. The police had orders to make the strictest search for the murderer. Caderousse's knife, dark lantern, bunch of keys and clothing, excepting the waistcoat, which could not be found, were deposited at the registry. The corpse was conveyed to the morgue. The Count told everyone that this adventure had happened during his absence at Auteuil, and that he only knew what was related by the Abbe Boussoni, who that evening, by mere chance, had requested to pass the night in his house to examine some valuable books in his library. Bertuccio alone turned pale whenever Benedetto's name was mentioned in his presence, but there was no reason why anyone should notice his doing so. Villefort, being called on to prove the crime, was preparing his brief with the same ardour that he was accustomed to exercise when required to speak in criminal cases. But three weeks had already passed and the most diligent search had been unsuccessful. The attempted robbery and the murder of the robber by his comrade were almost forgotten in anticipation of the approaching marriage of Mademoiselle Danglars to the Count Andrea Cavalcanti. It was expected that this wedding would shortly take place, as the young man was received at the bankers as the betrothed. Letters had been dispatched to Monsieur Cavalcanti, as the Count's father, who highly approved of the union regretted his inability to leave Parma at that time, and promised a wedding gift of a hundred and fifty thousand livres. It was agreed that the three millions should be entrusted to Donglars to invest. Some persons had warned the young man of the circumstances of his future father-in-law, who had of late sustained repeated losses. But with sublime disinterestedness and confidence the young man refused to listen or to express a single doubt to the baron. The baron adored Count Andrea Cavalcanti. Not so Mademoiselle Eugénie Danglars. With an instinctive hatred of matrimony, she suffered Andrea's attentions in order to get rid of Morcerf. But when Andrea urged his suit, she betrayed an entire dislike to him. The baron might possibly have perceived it, but attributing it to a caprice feigned ignorance. The delay demanded by Beauchamp had nearly expired. Morcerf appreciated the advice of Monte Cristo to let things die away of their own accord. No one had taken up the remark about the general, and no one had recognized in the officer who betrayed the castle at Yanina the noble count in the House of Peers. Albert, however, felt no less insulted. The few lines which had irritated him were certainly intended as an insult. Besides, the manner in which Beauchamp had closed the conference left a bitter recollection in his heart. He cherished the thought of the duel, hoping to conceal its true cause even from his seconds. Beauchamp had not been seen since the day he visited Albert, and those of whom the latter inquired always told him he was out on a journey which would detain him some days. Where he was, no one knew. One morning Albert was awakened by his valet de chambre, who announced Beauchamp. Albert rubbed his eyes, ordered his servant to introduce him into the small smoking-room on the ground floor, 
dressed himself quickly, and went down. He found Beauchamp pacing the room. On perceiving him, Beauchamp stopped. "'Your arrival here, without waiting my visit at your house to-day, looks very well, sir,' said Albert. "'Tell me, may I shake hands with you, saying, "'Beauchamp, acknowledge you have injured me and retain my friendship, "'or must I simply propose to you a choice of arms?' "'Albert!' said Beauchamp, with a look of sorrow which stupefied the young man. "'Let us first sit down and talk.' "'Rather, sir. Before we sit down, I must demand your answer.' "'Albert,' said the journalist, "'these are questions which is difficult to answer.' "'I will facilitate it by repeating the question. Will you, or will you not, retract?' Morcerf, it is not enough to answer yes or no to questions which concern the honour, the social interest, and the life of such a man as Lieutenant-General the Count of Morcerf, peer of France. What must then be done? What I have done, Albert. I reason thus. Money, time, and fatigue are nothing compared with the reputation and interests of a whole family. Probabilities will not suffice. Only facts will justify a deadly combat with a friend. If I strike with the sword, or discharge the contents of a pistol at man with whom for three years I have been on terms of intimacy, I must at least know why I do so. I must meet him with a heart at ease, and that quiet conscience which a man needs when his own arm must save his life. Well, said Morcerf impatiently, what does all this mean? It means that I have just returned from Yanina. From Yanina? Yes. Impossible. Here is my passport. Examine the visa. Geneva, Milan, Venice, Trieste, Delvino, Yanina. Will you believe the government of a republic, a kingdom, and an empire? Albert cast his eyes on the passport, then raised them in astonishment to Beauchamp. "'You have been to Yanina, said he. "'Albert, had you been a stranger, a foreigner, a simple lord, "'like that Englishman who came to demand satisfaction three or four months since, "'and whom I killed to get rid of, I should not have taken this trouble. "'But I thought this mark of consideration due to you. "'I took a week to go, another to return, four days of quarantine and forty-eight hours to stay there.' That makes three weeks. I returned last night, and here I am. What circumlocution! How long you are before you tell me what I most wish to know? Because in truth, Albert, you hesitate? Yes, I fear. You fear to acknowledge that your correspondent has deceived you? Oh, no. Self-love, Beauchamp. Acknowledge it. Beauchamp, your courage cannot be doubted. Not so, murmured the journalist. On the contrary. Albert turned frightfully pale. He endeavoured to speak, but the words died on his lips. My friend, said Beauchamp, in the most affectionate tone, I should gladly make an apology, but, alas! But what? The paragraph was correct, my friend. What? That French officer? Yes. Fernand? Yes. 
"'The traitor who surrendered the castle of the man in whose service he was—' "'Pardon me, my friend. That man was your father.' Albert advanced furiously towards Beauchamp, but the latter restrained him more by a mild look than by his extended hand. "'My friend,' said he, "'here is a proof of it.' Albert opened the paper. It was an attestation of four notable inhabitants of Yanina, proving that Colonel Fernand Mondego, in the service of Ali Tepelini, had surrendered the castle for two million crowns. The signatures were perfectly legal. Albert tottered and fell overpowered in a chair. It could no longer be doubted. The family name was fully given. After a moment's mournful silence, his heart overflowed, and he gave way to a flood of tears. Beauchamp, who had watched with sincere pity the young man's paroxysm of grief, approached him. "'Now, Albert,' said he, "'you understand me, do you not? I wish to see all, and to judge of everything for myself, hoping the explanation would be in your father's favour, and that I might do him justice. But, on the contrary, the particulars which are given prove that Fernand Mondego, raised by Ali Pasha to the rank of Governor-General, is no other than Count Fernand of Morcerf. Then, recollecting the honour you had done me in admitting me to your friendship, I hasten to you. Albert, still extended on the chair, covered his face with both hands, as if to prevent the light from reaching him. I hasten to you, continued Beauchamp, to tell you, Albert, that in this changing age the faults of a father cannot revert upon his children. Few have passed through this revolutionary period, in the midst of which we were born, without some stain of infamy or blood to soil the uniform of the soldier or the gown of the magistrate. Now I have these proofs, Albert, and I am in your confidence. No human power can force me to a duel which your own conscience would reproach you with as criminal, but I come to offer you what you can no longer demand of me. Do you wish these proofs, these attestations which I alone possess, to be destroyed? Do you wish this frightful secret to remain with us? Confide it to me, it shall never escape my lips. Say, Albert, my friend, do you wish it? Albert threw himself on Beauchamp's neck. "'Ah, oh, noble fellow!' cried he. "'Take these,' said Beauchamp, presenting the papers to Albert. Albert seized them with a convulsive hand, tore them in pieces, and trembling lest the least vestige should escape and one day appear to confront him, he approached the wax light, always kept burning for cigars, and burned every fragment. "'Dear, excellent friend,' murmured Albert, still burning the papers." "'Let all be forgotten as a sorrowful dream,' said Beauchamp. "'Let it vanish as the last sparks from the blackened paper, "'and disappear as the smoke from those silent ashes.' "'Yes, yes,' said Albert. "'And may there remain only the eternal friendship "'which I promised to my deliverer, "'which shall be transmitted to our children's children, "'and shall always remind me that I owe my life "'and the honour of my name to you. "'For had this been known,' Oh, Beauchamp, I should have destroyed myself. Or, no, my poor mother, I could not have killed her by the same blow. I should have fled from my country. 
dear Albert,' said Beauchamp, but this sudden and factitious joy soon forsook the young man and was succeeded by a still greater grief. "'Well,' said Beauchamp, "'what still oppresses you, my friend?' "'I am broken-hearted,' said Albert. "'Listen, Beauchamp, I cannot thus, in a moment, relinquish the respect, the confidence, and the pride with which a father's untarnished name inspires a son. Oh, Beauchamp, Beauchamp, how shall I now approach mine? Shall I draw back my forehead from his embrace, or withhold my hand from his? I am the most wretched of men. Oh, my mother, my poor mother, said Albert, gazing through his tears at his mother's portrait. If you know this, how much you must suffer. Come, said Beauchamp, taking both his hands. Take courage, my friend. But how came that first note to be inserted in your journal? Some unknown enemy, an invisible foe, has done this. The more must you fortify yourself, Albert. Let no trace of emotion be visible on your countenance. Bear your grief, as the cloud bears within it ruin and death a fatal secret, known only when the storm bursts. Go, my friend, reserve your strength for the moment when the crash shall come. You think, then, all is not over yet? said Albert, horror-stricken. I think nothing, my friend, but all things are possible. By the way— What? said Albert, seeing that Beauchamp hesitated. Are you going to marry Mademoiselle Donglars? Why do you ask me now? "'because the rupture or fulfilment of this engagement "'is connected with the person of whom we are speaking.' "'How?' said Albert, whose brow reddened. "'You think, Monsieur Danglars, "'I ask you only how your engagement stands.' "'Pray put no construction on my words "'I do not mean they should convey, "'and give them no undue weight.' "'No,' said Albert. "'The engagement is broken off.' Well, said Beauchamp, then seeing the young man was about to relapse into melancholy. Let us go, Albert, said he. A ride in the wood in the Phaeton or on horseback will refresh you. We will then return to breakfast, and you shall attend to your affairs, and I to mine. Willingly, said Albert. But let us walk. I think a little exertion would do me good. The two friends walked out on the fortress. When arrived at the Madeleine, "'Since we are out,' said Beauchamp, "'let us call on Monsieur de Monte Cristo. "'He is admirably adapted to revive one's spirits, "'because he never interrogates, "'and in my opinion those who ask no questions "'are the best comforters.' "'Gladly,' said Albert. "'I love him. "'Let us call.'" End of chapter 84 Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Chapter 85 of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. 
This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 85 The Journey Monte Cristo uttered a joyful exclamation on seeing the young men together. Aha! said he, I hope all is over, explained and settled. Yes, said Beauchamp, the absurd reports have died away, and should they be renewed, I would be the first to oppose them. So let us speak no more of it. Albert will tell you, replied the Count, that I gave him the same advice. Look, added he, I am finishing the most execrable morning's work. What is it? said Albert, arranging your papers, apparently. My papers, thank God, no, my papers are in capital order, because I have none, but Monsieur Cavalcanti's. Monsieur Cavalcanti's? asked Beauchamp. Yes. Do you not know that this is a young man whom the Count is introducing? said Morcerf. Let us not misunderstand each other replied Monte Cristo. I introduce no one, and certainly not Monsieur Cavalcanti. And who, said Albert with a forced smile, is to marry Mademoiselle Danglars instead of me, which grieves me cruelly. What? Cavalcanti is going to marry Mademoiselle Danglars? asked Beauchamp. Certainly. Do you come from the end of the world? said Monte Cristo. You, a journalist? the husband of renown it is the talk of all paris and you count have made this match asked beauchamp i silence purveyor of gossip do not spread that report i make a match no you do not know me i have done all in my power to oppose it ah i understand said beauchamp on our friend albert's account on my account said the young man oh no indeed the count will do me the justice to assert that i have on the contrary always entreated him to break off my engagement and happily it is ended the count pretends i have not him to thank so be it i will erect an alter deo ignoto listen said monte cristo i have had little to do with it for i am at variance both with the father-in-law and the young man there is only mademoiselle eugenie who appears but little charmed with the thoughts of matrimony and who seeing how little i was disposed to persuade her to renounce her dear liberty retains any affection for me and do you say this wedding is at hand oh yes in spite of all i could say i do not know the young man he is said to be of good family and rich but i never trust too vague assertions I have warned Monsieur Danglars of it till I am tired, but he is fascinated with his Lucanese. I have even informed him of a circumstance I consider very serious. The young man was either charmed by his nurse, stolen by gypsies, or lost by his tutor, I scarcely know which. But I do know his father lost sight of him for more than ten years. What he did during those ten years, God only knows. Well, all that was useless. They have commissioned me to write to the Major to demand papers, and here they are. I send them, but like pilot, washing my hands. And what does Mademoiselle d'Armilly say to you for robbing her of her pupil? Oh, well, I don't know, but I understand that she is going to Italy. Madame Danglars asked me for letters of recommendation for the impresari. 
I gave her a few lines for the director of the Valley Theatre, who is under some obligation to me. But what is the matter, Albert? You look dull. Are you, after all, unconsciously in love with Mademoiselle Eugénie? I am not aware of it, said Albert, smiling sorrowfully. Beauchamp turned to look at some paintings. But, continued Monte Cristo, you are not in your usual spirits. I have a dreadful headache, said Albert. Well, my dear Viscount, said Monte Cristo, I have an infallible remedy to propose to you. What is that? asked the young man. A change. Indeed, said Albert. Yes, and as I am just now excessively annoyed, I shall go from home. Shall we go together? You annoyed, Count? said Beauchamp. And by what? Ah, you think very lightly of it. I should like to see you with a brief preparing in your house. What brief? The one Monsieur de Villefort is preparing against my amiable assassin. Some brigand escaped from the gallows, apparently. True, said Beauchamp. I saw it in the paper. Who is this Caderousse? Some provincial, it appears, Monsieur de Villefort heard of him at Marseilles, and Monsieur Danglars recollects having seen him. Consequently, the procureur is very active in the affair and the prefect of police very much interested, and thanks to that interest, for which I am very grateful, they send me all the robbers of Paris and the neighbourhood, under pretence of their being Caderousse's murderers, so that in three months, if this continues, every robber and assassin in France will have the plan of my house at his finger's end. I am resolved to desert them, and go to some remote corner of the earth, and shall be happy if you will accompany me, Viscount. Willingly. Then it is settled. Yes, but where? I have told you, where the air is pure, where every sound soothes, where one is sure to be humbled, however proud may be his nature. I love that humiliation, I who am master of the universe as was Augustus. But where are you really going? To sea, Viscount. You know I am a sailor. I was rocked when an infant in the arms of old ocean and on the bosom of the beautiful Amphrotite. I have sported with the green mantle of the one and the Asia robe of the other. I love the sea as a mistress, and pine if I do not often see her. Let us go, Count. To see? Yes. You accept my proposal? I do. Well, Viscount, there will be in my courtyard this evening a good travelling britska with four post-horses, in which one may rest, as in a bed, Monsieur Beauchamp, it holds four very well. Will you accompany us? Thank you. I have just returned from the sea. What? You have been to sea? Yes. I have just made a little excursion to the Borromean Islands. What of that? Come with us, said Albert. No, dear Morcerf, you know I only refuse when the thing is impossible. Besides, it is important, added he in a low tone, that I should remain in Paris just now to watch the paper. Ah, you are good and excellent friend, said Albert. 
Yes, you are right. Watch, watch, Beauchamp, and try to discover the enemy who made this disclosure. Albert and Beauchamp parted, the last pressure of their hands expressing what their tongues could not before a stranger. Beauchamp is a worthy fellow, said Monte Cristo, when the journalist was gone. Is he not, Albert? Yes, and a sincere friend. I love him devotedly. But now we are alone, although it is immaterial to me. Where are we going? Into Normandy, if you like. Delightful. Shall we be quite retired? Have no society, no neighbors? Our companions will be riding horses, dogs to hunt with, and a fishing boat. Exactly what I wish for. I will apprise my mother of my intention and return to you. But shall you be allowed to go into Normandy? I may go where I please. Yes, I am aware you may go alone, since I once met you in Italy, but to accompany the mysterious Monte Cristo. You forget, Count, that I have often told you of the deep interest my mother takes in you. Woman is fickle, said Francis first. Woman is like a wave of the sea, said Shakespeare. Both the great king and the great poet ought to have known woman's nature well. Woman's, yes. My mother is not a woman, but a woman. As I am only a humble foreigner, you must pardon me if I do not understand all the subtle refinements of your language. What I mean to say is that my mother is not quick to give her confidence, but when she does, she never changes. Ah, yes, indeed, said Monte Cristo with a sigh. And do you think she is in the least interested in me? I repeat it, you must really be a very strange and superior man, for my mother is so absorbed by the interest you have excited that when I am with her she speaks of no one else. And does she try to make you dislike me? On the contrary, she often says, Morcerf, I believe the Count has a noble nature. Try to gain his esteem. Indeed, said Monte Cristo, sighing. You see then, said Albert, that instead of opposing, she will encourage me. Adieu then, until five o'clock. Be punctual and we shall arrive at twelve or one. At Treport? Yes, or in the neighbourhood. But can we travel forty-eight leagues in eight hours? Easily, said Monte Cristo. You are certain a prodigy. You will soon not only surpass the railway, which would not be very difficult in France, but even the telegraph. But why, Count, since we cannot perform the journey in less than seven or eight hours, do not keep me waiting. Do not fear. I have little to prepare. Monte Cristo smiled as he nodded to Albert, then remained a moment absorbed in deep meditation, but passing his hand across his forehead as if to dispel his reverie, he rang the bell twice, and Bertuccio entered. Bertuccio, said he, I intend going this evening to Normandy, instead of tomorrow or the next day. You will have sufficient time before five o'clock. Dispatch a messenger to apprise the grooms at the first station. Monsieur de Morcerf will accompany me. Bertuccio obeyed and dispatched a courier to Pontoise, 
to say the travelling carriage would arrive at six o'clock. From Pontoise, another express was sent to the next stage, and in six hours all the horses stationed on the road were ready. Before his departure, the Count went to Hades' apartments, told her his intention, and resigned everything to her care. Albert was punctual. The journey soon became interesting from its rapidity, of which Marcef had formed no previous idea. Truly, said Monte Cristo, with your post-horse is going at the rate of two leagues an hour, and that absurd law that one traveller shall not pass another without permission, so that an invalid or ill-tempered traveller may detain those who are well and active, it is impossible to move. I escape this annoyance by travelling with my own postilion and horses, do I not, Ali? The Count put his head out of the window and whistled, and the horses appeared to fly. The carriage rolled with a thundering noise over the pavement, and every one turned to notice the dazzling meteor. Ali, smiling, repeated the sound, grasped the reins with a firm hand, and spurred his horses, whose beautiful manes floated in the breeze. This child of the desert was in his element, and with his black face and sparkling eyes appeared in the cloud of dust he raised, like the genius of the simoom and the god of the hurricane. "'I never knew till now the delight of speed,' said Morcerf, and the last cloud disappeared from his brow. "'But where the devil do you get such horses? Are they made to order?' "'Precisely,' said the Count. Six years since I bought a horse in Hungary remarkable for its swiftness. The thirty-two that we shall use to-night are its progeny. They are all entirely black, with the exception of a star upon the forehead. That is perfectly admirable. But what do you do, Count, with all these horses? You see, I travel with them. But you are not always travelling. When I no longer require them, Bertuccio will sell them, and he expects to realize thirty or forty thousand francs by the sale. But no monarch in Europe will be wealthy enough to purchase them. Then he will sell them to some eastern vizier, who will empty his coffers to purchase them, and refill them by applying the bastinado to his subjects. Count, may I suggest one idea to you? Certainly. It is that... Next to you, Bertuccio must be the richest gentleman in Europe. You are mistaken, Viscount. I believe he has not a franc in his possession. Then he must be a wonder, my dear Count. If you tell me many more marvellous things, I warn you I shall not believe them. I countenance nothing that is marvellous, Monsieur Albert. Tell me, why does a steward rob his master? Because, I suppose... It is his nature to do so, for the love of robbing. You are mistaken. It is because he has a wife and family, and ambitious desires for himself and them. Also because he is not sure of always retaining his situation, and wishes to provide for the future. Now Monsieur Bertuccio is alone in the world. He uses my property without accounting for the use he makes of it. He is sure never to leave my service. Why? Because I should never get a better. Probabilities are deceptive. But I deal in certainties. He is the best servant over whom one has the power of life and death. 
Do you possess that right over Bertuccio? Yes. There are words which close a conversation with an iron door. Such was the Count's yes. The whole journey was performed with equal rapidity. The thirty-two horses, dispersed over seven stages, brought them to their destination in eight hours. At midnight they arrived at the gate of a beautiful park. The porter was in attendance. He had been apprised by the groom of the last stage of the Count's approach. At half-past two in the morning Morcerf was conducted to his apartments, where a bath and supper were prepared. The servant, who had travelled at the back of the carriage, waited on him. Baptistin, who rode in front, attended the Count. Albert bathed, took his supper, and went to bed. All night he was lulled by the melancholy noise of the surf. On rising, he went to his window, which opened on a terrace, having the sea in front, and at the back a pretty park bounded by a small forest. In a creek lay a little sloop with a narrow keel and high masts, bearing on its flag the Monte Cristo arms, which were a mountain on a sea Asia, with a cross gules on the shield. Around the schooner lay a number of small fishing boats belonging to the fishermen of the neighbouring village, like humble subjects awaiting orders from their queen. There, as in every spot where Monte Cristo stopped, if but for two days, luxury abounded, and life went on with the utmost ease. Albert found in his anteroom two guns, with all the accoutrements for hunting, a lofty room on the ground floor containing all the ingenious instruments the English, eminent in piscatory pursuits, since they are patient and sluggish, have invented for fishing. The day passed in pursuing those exercises in which Monte Cristo excelled. They killed a dozen pheasants in the park, as many trout in the stream, dined in a summer-house overlooking the ocean, and took tea in the library. Towards the evening of the third day, Albert, completely exhausted with the exercise which invigorated Monte Cristo, was sleeping in an armchair near the window, while the Count was designing with his architect the plan of a conservatory in his house, when the sound of a horse at full speed on the high road made Albert look up. He was disagreeably surprised to see his own valet de chambre, whom he had not brought, that he might not inconvenience Monte Cristo. "'Florentin here!' cried he, starting up. "'Is my mother ill?' And he hastened to the door. Monte Cristo watched and saw him approach the valet, who drew a small sealed parcel from his pocket, containing a newspaper and a letter. "'From whom is this?' said he eagerly. "'From Monsieur Beauchamp,' replied Florentin. "'Did he send you?' "'Yes, sir. He sent for me to his house, gave me money for my journey, procured a horse, and made me promise not to stop till I had reached you. I have come in fifteen hours.' Albert opened the letter with fear, uttered a shriek on reading the first line, and seized the paper. His sight was dimmed, his legs sank under him, and he would have fallen had not Florentin supported him. "'Poor young man,' said Monte Cristo in a low voice, "'it is then true that the sin of the father shall fall on the children to the third and fourth generation.' Meanwhile Albert had revived, and continuing to read, he threw back his head, saying, "'Florentin, is your horse fit to return immediately?' "'It is a poor lame post-horse.' "'In what state was the house when you left?' "'All was quiet, 
but on returning from Monsieur Beauchamp, I found Madame in tears. She had sent for me to know when you would return. I told her my orders from Monsieur Beauchamp. She first extended her arms to prevent me, but after a moment's reflection. Yes, go, Florentine, said she, and may he come quickly. Yes, my mother, said Albert, I will return, and woe to the infamous wretch. But first of all I must get there. He went back to the room where he had left Monte Cristo. Five minutes had sufficed to make a complete transformation in his appearance. His voice had become rough and hoarse. His face was furrowed with wrinkles. His eyes burned under the blue-veined lids, and he tottered like a drunken man. "'Count,' said he, "'I thank you for your hospitality, which I would gladly have enjoyed longer. But I must return to Paris.' "'What has happened?' a great misfortune more important to me than life don't question me i beg of you but lend me a horse my stables are at your command viscount but you will kill yourself by riding on horseback take a post-chaise or a carriage no it would delay me and i need the fatigue you warn me of it will do me good albert reeled as if he'd been shot and fell on a chair near the door. Monte Cristo did not see this second manifestation of physical exhaustion. He was at the window calling, Ali, a horse for Monsieur de Morcerf. Quick, he is in a hurry. These words restored Albert. He darted from the room, followed by the Count. Thank you, cried he, throwing himself on his horse. Return as soon as you can, Florentin. Must I use any password to procure a horse? only dismount another will be immediately saddled albert hesitated a moment you may think my departure strange and foolish said the young man you do not know how a paragraph in a newspaper may exasperate one read that said he when i am gone that you may not be witness of my anger while the count picked up the paper he put spurs to his horse, which leapt in astonishment at such an unusual stimulus, and shot away with the rapidity of an arrow. The Count watched him with a feeling of compassion, and when he had completely disappeared, read as follows. The French officer in the service of Ali Pasha of Yanina alluded to three weeks since in the impartial, who not only surrendered the castle of Yanina, but sold his benefactor to the Turks, styled himself truly at that time fernand as our esteemed contemporary states but he has since added to his christian name a title of nobility and a family name he now calls himself the count of morcerf and ranks among the peers thus the terrible secret which beauchamp had so generously destroyed appeared again like an armed phantom and another paper, deriving its information from some malicious source, had published two days after Albert's departure for Normandy, the few lines which had rendered the unfortunate young man almost crazy. End of chapter 85《Chapter 86 of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 86 
the trial at eight o'clock in the morning albert had arrived at beauchamp's door the valet de chambre had received orders to usher him in at once beauchamp was in his bath here i am said albert well my poor friend replied beauchamp i expected you i need not say i think you are too faithful and too kind to have spoken of that painful circumstance your having sent for me is another proof of your affection so without losing time tell me have you the slightest idea whence this terrible blow proceeds i think i have some clue but first tell me all the particulars of this shameful plot beauchamp proceeded to relate to the young man who was overwhelmed with shame and grief the following facts two days previously the article had appeared in another paper besides the impartial and what was more serious one that was well known as a government paper beauchamp was breakfasting when he read the paragraph he sent immediately for a cabriolet and hastened to the publisher's office although professing diametrically opposite principles from those of the editor of the other paper beauchamp as it sometimes we may say often happens was his intimate friend the editor was reading with apparent delight a leading article in the same paper on beet sugar probably a composition of his own ah pardieu said beauchamp with the paper in your hand my friend i need not tell you the cause of my visit are you interested in the sugar question asked the editor of the ministerial paper no replied beauchamp i have not considered the question a totally different subject interests me what is it the article relative to morcerf indeed is it not a curious affair so curious that i think you are running a great risk of a prosecution for defamation of character not at all we have received with the information all the requisite proofs and we are quite sure monsieur de morcerf will not raise his voice against us besides it is rendering a service to one's country to denounce these wretched criminals who are unworthy of the honor bestowed on them beauchamp was thunderstruck who then has so correctly informed you asked he for my paper which gave the first information on the subject has been obliged to stop for want of proof and yet we are more interested than you in exposing monsieur de morcerf as he is a peer of france and we are of the opposition oh that is very simple we have not sought to scandalize this news was brought to us a man arrived yesterday from janina bringing a formidable array of documents and when we hesitated to publish the accusatory article he told us it should be inserted in some other paper beauchamp understood that nothing remained but to submit and left the office to dispatch a courier to morcerf but he had been unable to send to albert the following particulars as the events had transpired after the messenger's departure namely that the same day a great agitation was manifest in the house of peers among the usually calm members of that dignified assembly everyone had arrived almost before the usual hour and was conversing on the melancholy event which was to attract the attention of the public towards one of their most illustrious colleagues some were perusing the article others making comments and recalling circumstances which substantiated the charges still more the count of morcerf was no favorite with his colleagues like all upstarts 
he had had recourse to a great deal of haughtiness to maintain his position the true nobility laughed at him the talented repelled him and the honourable instinctively despised him he was in fact in the unhappy position of the victim marked for sacrifice the finger of god once pointed at him every one was prepared to raise the hue and cry the count of morcerf alone was ignorant of the news he did not take in the paper containing the defamatory article and had passed the morning in writing letters and in trying a horse he arrived at his usual hour with a proud look and insolent demeanour he alighted passed through the corridors and entered the house without observing the hesitation of the doorkeepers or the coolness of his colleagues business had already been going on for half an hour when he entered everyone held the accusing paper but as usual no one liked to take upon himself the responsibility of the attack at length an honourable peer morcerf's acknowledged enemy ascended the tribune with that solemnity which announced that the expected moment had arrived there was an impressive silence morcerf alone knew not why such profound attention was given to an orator who was not always listened to with so much complacency the count did not notice the introduction in which the speaker announced that his communication would be of that vital importance that it demanded the undivided attention of the house but at the mention of janina and colonel fernand he turned so frightfully pale that every member shuddered and fixed his eyes upon him moral wounds have this peculiarity they may be hidden but they never close always painful always ready to bleed when touched they remain fresh and open in the heart the article having been read during the painful hush that followed a universal shudder pervaded the assembly and immediately the closest attention was given to the orator as he resumed his remarks he stated his scruples and the difficulties of the case it was the honor of monsieur de morcerf and that of the whole house he proposed to defend by provoking a debate on personal questions which are always such painful themes of discussion he concluded by calling for an investigation which might dispose of the calumnious report before it had time to spread and restore monsieur de morcerf to the position he had long held in public opinion morcerf was so completely overwhelmed by this great and unexpected calamity that he could scarcely stammer a few words as he looked around on the assembly this timidity which might proceed from the astonishment of innocence as well as the shame of guilt conciliated some in his favour for men who are truly generous are always ready to compassionate when the misfortune of their enemy surpasses the limits of their hatred the president put it to the vote and it was decided that the investigation should take place the count was asked what time he required to prepare his defence morcerf's courage had revived when he found himself alive after this horrible blow my lords answered he it is not by time i could repel the attack made on me by enemies unknown to me and doubtless hidden in obscurity it is immediately and by a thunderbolt that i must repel the flash of lightning which for a moment startled me oh that i could instead of taking up this defence shed my last drop of blood to prove to my noble colleagues that i am their equal in worth these words made a favourable impression on behalf of the accused i demand then 
that the examination shall take place as soon as possible, and I will furnish the house with all necessary information. "'What day do you fix?' asked the President. "'Today I am at your service,' replied the Count. The President rang the bell. "'Does the House approve that the examination should take place today?' "'Yes,' was the unanimous answer. A committee of twelve members was chosen to examine the proofs brought forward by Morsef. The investigation would begin at eight o'clock that evening in the committee room, and, if postponement were necessary, the proceedings would be resumed each evening at the same hour. Morsef asked leave to retire. He had to collect the documents he had long been preparing against this storm, which his sagacity had foreseen. Albert listened, trembling now with hope, then with anger, and then again with shame, for from Beauchamp's confidence he knew his father was guilty, and he asked himself how, since he was guilty, he could prove his innocence. Beauchamp hesitated to continue his narrative. "'What next?' asked Albert. "'What next, my friend? You impose a painful task on me. Must you know all?' absolutely and rather from your lips than another's muster up all your courage then for never have you required it more albert passed his hand over his forehead as if to try his strength as a man who is preparing to defend his life proves his shield and bends his sword he thought himself strong enough for he mistook fever for energy go on said he the evening arrived all Paris was in expectation. Many said your father had only to show himself to crush the charge against him. Many others said he would not appear, while some asserted that they had seen him start for Brussels, and others went to the police office to inquire if he had taken out a passport. I used all my influence with one of the committee, a young peer of my acquaintance, to get admission to one of the galleries. He called for me at seven o'clock, and before anyone had arrived, asked one of the doorkeepers to place me in a box. I was concealed by a column, and might witness the whole of the terrible scene which was about to take place. At eight o'clock all were in their places, and Monsieur de Morcerf entered at the last stroke. He held some papers in his hand. His countenance was calm, and his step firm and he was dressed with great care in his military uniform, which was buttoned completely up to the chin. His presence produced a good effect. The committee was made up of liberals, several of whom came forward to shake hands with him. Albert felt his heart bursting at these particulars, but gratitude mingled with his sorrow. He would gladly have embraced those who had given his father this proof of esteem at a moment when his honour was so powerfully attacked. At this moment, one of the doorkeepers brought in a letter for the President. "'You are at liberty to speak, Monsieur de Morcerf,' said the President, as he unsealed the letter, and the Count began his defence. "'I assure you, Albert, in a most eloquent and skilful manner. He produced documents proving that the vizier of Yanina had up to the last moment honoured him with his entire confidence.' since he had interested him with a negotiation of life and death with the emperor. He produced a ring, his mark of authority, with which Ali Pasha generally sealed his letters, and which the latter had given him that he might, on his return at any hour of the day or night, 
gain access to the presence even in the harem. Unfortunately, the negotiation failed, and when he returned to defend his benefactor, he was dead. But, said the Count, so great was Ali Pasha's confidence that on his deathbed he resigned his favourite mistress and her daughter to my care. Albert started on hearing these words. The history of Hadi recurred to him, and he remembered what she had said of that message and the ring, and the manner in which she had been sold and made a slave. "'And what effect did this discourse produce?' anxiously inquired Albert. "'I acknowledge it affected me, and indeed all the committee also,' said Beauchamp. Meanwhile the President carelessly opened the letter which had been brought to him, but the first lines aroused his attention. He read them again and again, and fixing his eyes on Monsieur de Morcerf, "'Count,' said he, "'you have said that the vizier of Yanina confided his wife and daughter to your care.' "'Yes, sir,' replied Morcerf, "'but in that, like all the rest, misfortune pursued me. On my return, Vasiliki and her daughter Heidi had disappeared. Did you know them? My intimacy with the Pasha and his unlimited confidence had gained me an introduction to them, and I had seen them about twenty times. Have you any idea what became of them? Yes, sir. I heard they had fallen victims to their sorrow and perhaps to their poverty. I was not rich. My life was in constant danger. I could not seek them, to my great regret. The President frowned imperceptibly. Gentlemen, said he, you have heard the Comte de Morcerf's defence. Can you, sir, produce any witnesses to the truth of what you have asserted? Alas, no, monsieur, replied the Count. All those surrounding the vizier, or who knew me at his court, are either dead or gone away. I know not where. I believe that I alone, of all my countrymen, survived that dreadful war. I have only the letters of Ali Tepelini, which I have placed before you, the ring, a token of his goodwill, which is here, and lastly, the most convincing proof I can offer, after an anonymous attack, and that is the absence of any witness against my veracity and the purity of my military life. A murmur of approbation ran through the assembly, and at this moment Albert had nothing more transpired, your father's cause had been gained. It only remained to put it to the vote, when the President resumed, "'Gentlemen, and you, monsieur, you will not be displeased, I presume, to listen to one who calls himself a very important witness, and who has just presented himself. He is doubtless come to prove the perfect innocence of our colleague.' Here is a letter I have just received on the subject. Shall it be read, or shall it be passed over? And shall we take no notice of this incident? Monsieur de Morcerf turned pale, and clinched his hands on the papers he held. The committee decided to hear the letter. The count was thoughtful and silent. The president read. Monsieur President, I can furnish the committee of inquiry into the conduct of the lieutenant-general the Count of Morcerf in Epirus and in Macedonia with important particulars. The president paused, and the Count turned pale. The president looked at his auditors. Proceed, was heard on all sides. The president resumed. 
I was on the spot at the death of Ali Pasha. I was present during these last moments. I know what is become of Vasiliki and Hedi. I am at the command of the committee, and even claim the honour of being heard. I shall be in the lobby when this note is delivered to you. And who is this witness, or rather this enemy? asked the Count, in a tone in which there was a visible alteration. We shall know, sir, replied the President. Is the committee willing to hear this witness? Yes, yes, they all said at once. The doorkeeper was called. "'Is there anyone in the lobby?' said the President. "'Yes, sir.' "'Who is it?' "'A woman, accompanied by a servant.' Everyone looked at his neighbour. "'Bring her in,' said the President. Five minutes after the doorkeeper again appeared, all eyes were fixed on the door, and I,' said Beauchamp, "'shared the general expectation and anxiety. Behind the doorkeeper walked a woman enveloped in a large veil,' which completely concealed her. It was evident from her figure and the perfumes she had about her that she was young and fastidious in her tastes, but that was all. The President requested her to throw aside her veil, and it was then seen that she was dressed in the Grecian costume and was remarkably beautiful. Ah, oh, said Albert, it was she. Who? Hedy. Who told you that? Alas, I guess it. But go on, Beauchamp. You see, I am calm and strong, and yet we must be drawing near the disclosure. Monsieur de Morcerf, continued Beauchamp, looked at this woman with a surprise and terror. Her lips were about to pass his sentence of life or death. To the committee, the adventure was so extraordinary and curious that the interest they had felt for the Count's safety became now quite a secondary matter. The President himself advanced to a place a seat for the young lady, but she declined, availing herself of it. As for the Count, he had fallen on his chair. It was evident that his legs refused to support him. "'Madame,' said the President, "'you have engaged to furnish the committee with some important particulars respecting the affair at Yanina, and you have stated that you are an eyewitness of the event.' "'I was, indeed,' said the stranger, with a tone of sweet melancholy, and with a sonorous voice peculiar to the East. "'But allow me to say that you must have been very young, then.' "'I was four years old. But as those events deeply concerned me, not a single detail was escaped from my memory. "'In what manner could these events concern you?' And who are you that they should have made so deep an impression on you? On them depended my father's life, replied she. I am Hedi, the daughter of Ali Tepelini, Pasha of Yanina, and of Vasiliki, his beloved wife. The blush of mingled pride and modesty which suddenly suffused the cheeks of the young woman, the brilliancy of her eye and her highly important communication, produced an indescribable effect on the assembly. As for the Count, he could not have been more overwhelmed if a thunderbolt had fallen at his feet and opened an immense gulf before him. "'Madame,' replied the President, bowing with profound respect, "'allow me to ask one question. It shall be the last. 
"'Can you prove the authenticity of what you have now stated?' "'I can, sir,' said Hedy, drawing from under her veil a satin satchel highly perfumed. "'For here is the register of my birth, signed by my father and his principal officers, and that of my baptism, my father having consented to my being brought up in my mother's faith.' this latter has been sealed with the grand primate of macedonia and epirus and lastly and perhaps the most important the record of the sale of my person and that of my mother to the armenian merchant el corbir by the french officer who in his infamous bargain with the porte had reserved as his part of the booty the wife and daughter of his benefactor whom he sold for the sum of four hundred thousand francs. A greenish pallor spread over the Count's cheeks, and his eyes became bloodshot at these terrible imputations, which were listened to by the assembly with ominous silence. Hedy, still calm, but with a calmness more dreadful than the anger of another would have been, handed to the President the record of her sale, written in Arabic. It had been supposed some of the papers might be in the Arabian, Romaic, or Turkish language, and the interpreter of the house was in attendance. One of the noble peers, who was familiar with the Arabic language, having studied it during the famous Egyptian campaign, followed with his eyes as the translator read aloud. I, El Kobir, a slave merchant and purveyor of the arm of his highness, Acknowledge having received for transmission to the sublime emperor from the French lord, the Count of Monte Cristo, an emerald valued at eight hundred thousand francs, as the ransom of a young Christian slave of eleven years of age, named Aidi, the acknowledged daughter of the late Lord Ali Tepellini, Pasha of Yanina and of Vasiliki, his favourite, she having been sold to me seven years previously with her mother who had died on arriving at Constantinople by a French colonel in the service of the vizier Ali Tepellini, named Fernand Mondego. The above-mentioned purchase was made on His Highness's account, whose mandate I had for the sum of 400,000 francs. Given at Constantinople by authority of His Highness in the year 1247 of the Hegira, signed El Kobir. That this record should have all due authority, it shall bear the imperial seal, which the vendor is bound to have affixed to it. Near the merchant's signature, there was indeed the seal of the sublime emperor. A dreadful silence followed the reading of this document. The count could only stare, and his gaze, fixed as if unconsciously on Hedy, seemed one of fire and blood. Madame, said the president, May reference be made to the Count of Monte Cristo, who is now, I believe, in Paris. Sir, replied Hedy, the Count of Monte Cristo, my foster father, has been in Normandy the last three days. Who, then, has counselled you to take this step, one for which the court is deeply indebted to you, and which is perfectly natural, considering your birth and your misfortunes? Sir, replied Hedy, I have been led to take this step from a feeling of respect and grief. Although a Christian, may God forgive me, I have always sought to revenge my illustrious father. Since I set my foot in France, 
and knew the traitor lived in Paris. I have watched carefully. I live retired in the house of my noble protector, but I do it from my choice. I love retirement and silence, because I can live with my thoughts and recollections of my past days. But the Count of Monte Cristo surrounds me with every paternal care, and I am ignorant of nothing which passes in the world. I learn all in the silence of my apartments, for instance. I see all the newspapers, every periodical as well as every new piece of music, and by thus watching the course of the life of others, I learned what had transpired this morning in the House of Peers, and what was to take place this evening when I wrote. Then, remarked the President, the Count of Monte Cristo knows nothing of your present proceedings. He is quite unaware of them, and I have but one fear, which is that he should disapprove of what I have done. But it is a glorious day for me, continued the young girl, raising her ardent gaze to heaven, that on which I find at last an opportunity of avenging my father. The Count had not uttered one word the whole of this time. His colleagues looked at him and doubtless pitied his prospects, blighted under the perfumed breath of a woman. His misery was depicted in sinister lines on his countenance. "'Monsieur de Morcerf,' said the President, "'do you recognize this lady as the daughter of Ali Tepelini, Pasha of Yanina?' "'No,' said Morcerf, attempting to rise. "'It is a base plot, contrived by my enemies.' Haydi, whose eyes had been fixed on the door as if expecting someone, turned hastily and, seeing the Count standing, shrieked. "'You do not know me?' said she. "'Well, I fortunately recognize you. "'You are Fernand Mondego, the French officer who led the troops of my noble father.' It is you who surrendered the castle of Janina. It is you who were sent by him to Constantinople to treat with the emperor for the life or death of your benefactor, brought back a false mandate granting full pardon. It is you who, with that mandate, obtained the pasha's ring, which gave you authority over Selim, the firekeeper. It is you who stabbed Selim. It is you who sold us, my mother and me, to the merchant El Kobir. Assassin! 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 You have still on your brow your master's blood. Look, gentlemen, all! These words had been pronounced with such enthusiasm and evident truth that every eye was fixed on the Count's forehead and he himself passed his hand across it, as if he felt Ali's blood still lingered there. "'You positively recognize Monsieur de Morcerf as the officer, Fernand Mondego?' "'Indeed I do,' cried Haiti. "'Oh, my mother, it was you who said. You were free, you had a beloved father, you were destined to be almost a queen. Look well at that man. It is he who raised your father's head on the point of a spear. It is he who sold us. It is he who forsook us. Look well at his right hand, on which he has a large wound. If you forgot his features, you would know him by that hand, into which fell, one by one, the gold pieces of the merchant El Kopir. I know him. Ah, let him say now, if he does not recognize me. Each word fell like a dagger on Morcerf, and deprived him of a portion of his energy as she uttered the last. He hid his mutilated hand hastily on his bosom and fell back on his seat, overwhelmed by wretchedness and despair. 
This scene completely changed the opinion of the assembly respecting the accused Count. "'Count of Morcerf,' said the President, "'do not allow yourself to be cast down. Answer. The justice of the court is supreme and impartial as that of God. It will not suffer you to be trampled on by your enemies without giving you an opportunity of defending yourself. Shall further inquiries be made?' "'Shall two members of the house be sent to Yanina? "'Speak!' Morcerf did not reply. "'Then all the members looked at each other with terror. "'They knew the Count's energetic and violent temper. "'It must be indeed a dreadful blow "'which would deprive him of courage to defend himself. "'They expected that his stupefied silence "'would be followed by a fiery outburst. "'Well?' asked the President. "'What is your decision?' "'I have no reply to make,' said the Count in a low tone. "'Has the daughter of Ali Tepelini spoken the truth?' said the President. "'Is she, then, the terrible witness to whose charge you dare not plead not guilty? "'Have you really committed the crimes of which you are accused?' "'The Count looked around him with an expression which might have softened tigers, "'but which could not disarm his judges.' Then he raised his eyes toward the ceiling, but withdrew them immediately, as if he feared the roof would open and reveal to his distressed view that second tribunal called Evan, and that other judge named God. Then, with a hasty movement, he tore open his coat, which seemed to stifle him, and flew from the room like a madman. His footstep was heard one moment in the corridor, then the rattling of his carriage wheels as he was driven rapidly away. "'Gentlemen,' said the President, when silence was restored, "'is the Count of Morcerf convicted of felony, treason, and conduct unbecoming a member of this house?' "'Yes,' replied all the members of the Committee of Inquiry, with a unanimous voice. Hedy had remained until the close of the meeting. She heard the Count's sentence pronounced without betraying an expression of joy or pity. Then, drawing her veil over her face, she bowed majestically to the councillors, and left with that dignified step which Virgil attributes to his goddesses. End of chapter 86《Chapter 87 of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 87. The Challenge. Then, continued Beauchamp, I took advantage of the silence and the darkness to leave the house without being seen. The usher who had introduced me was waiting for me at the door, and he conducted me through the corridors to a private entrance opening into the Rue de Vaugirard. I left with mingled feelings of sorrow and delight. Excuse me, Albert, sorrow on your account, and delight with that noble girl, thus pursuing paternal vengeance. Yes, Albert, from whatever source the blow may have proceeded, it may be from an enemy, but that enemy is only the agent of providence. Albert held his head between his hands. He raised his face, red with shame and bathed in tears, and seizing Beauchamp's arm, "'My friend,' said he, "'my life is ended. "'I cannot calmly say with you 
providence has struck the blow but i must discover who pursues me with this hatred and when i have found him i shall kill him or he will kill me i rely on your friendship to assist me beauchamp if contempt has not banished it from your heart contempt my friend how does this misfortune affect you no happily that unjust prejudice is forgotten which made the son responsible for the father's actions review your life albert although it is only just beginning did a lovely summer's day ever dawn with greater purity than has marked the commencement of your career no albert take my advice you are young and rich leave paris all is soon forgotten in this great babylon of excitement and changing tastes you will return after three or four years with a russian princess for a bride and no one will think more of what occurred yesterday than if it had happened sixteen years ago thank you my dear beauchamp thank you for the excellent feeling which prompts your advice but it cannot be i have told you my wish or rather my determination you understand that interested as i am in this affair i cannot see it in the same light as you do what appears to you to emanate from a celestial source seems to me to proceed from one far less pure providence appears to me to have no share in this affair and happily so for instead of the invisible impalpable agent of celestial rewards and punishments i shall find one both palpable and visible on whom i shall revenge myself i assure you for all i have suffered during the last month now i repeat beauchamp i wish to return to human and material existence and if you are still the friend you profess to be help me to discover the hand that struck the blow be it so said beauchamp if you must have me descend to earth i submit and if you will seek your enemy i will assist you and i will engage to find him my honor being almost as deeply interested as yours well then you understand beauchamp that we begin our search immediately each moment's delay is an eternity for me the calumniator is not yet punished and he may hope that he will not be but on my honor if he thinks so he deceives himself well listen morcerf ah beauchamp i see you know something already you will restore me to life i do not say there is any truth in what i am going to tell you but it is at least a ray of light in a dark night by following it we may discover perhaps something more certain tell me satisfy my impatience well i will tell you what i did not like to mention on my return from janina say on i went of course to the chief banker of the town to make inquiries at the first word before i had even mentioned your father's name ah said he i guess what brings you here how and why because a fortnight since i was questioned on the same subject by whom by a paris banker my correspondent whose name is danglars he cried albert yes it is indeed he who has no long pursued my father with jealous hatred he the man who would be popular cannot forgive the count of morcerf for being created a peer 
and this marriage broken off without a reason being assigned. Yes, it is all from the same cause. Make inquiries, Albert, but do not be angry without reason. Make inquiries, and if it be true. Oh, yes, if it be true, cried the young man, he shall pay me all I have suffered. Beware, Morcerf, he is already an old man. I will respect his age, as he has respected the honour of my family. If my father had offended him, why did he not attack him personally? Oh, no, he was afraid to encounter him face to face. I do not condemn you, Albert. I only restrain you. Act prudently. Oh, do not fear. Besides, you will accompany me. Beauchamp, solemn transactions should be sanctioned by a witness. Before this day closes, if Monsieur Danglars is guilty, he shall cease to live, or I shall die. Pardieu, Beauchamp, mine shall be a splendid funeral. When such resolutions are made, Albert, they should be promptly executed. Do you wish to go to Monsieur Danglars? Let us go immediately. They sent for a cabriolet. On entering the banker's mansion, they perceived the phaeton and servant of Monsieur Andrea Cavalcanti. Ah, oh, parbleu, that's good, said Albert with a gloomy tone. If Monsieur Danglars will not fight with me, I will kill his son-in-law. Cavalcanti will certainly fight. The servant announced the young man that the banker, recollecting what had transpired the day before, did not wish him admitted. It was, however, too late. Albert had followed the footman, and, hearing the order given, forced the door open, and, followed by Beauchamp, found himself in the banker's study. "'Sir,' cried the latter, "'am I no longer at liberty to receive whom I choose in my house? You appear to forget yourself sadly.' "'No, sir,' said Albert coldly. "'There are circumstances in which one cannot, except through cowardice.' I offer you that refuge. Refuse to admit certain persons at least. What is your errand, then, with me, sir? I mean, said Albert, drawing near, and without apparently noticing Cavalcanti, who stood with his back towards the fireplace, I mean to propose a meeting in some retired corner where no one will interrupt us for ten minutes. That will be sufficient. Where two men, having met... One of them will remain on the ground. Danglars turned pale. Cavalcanti moved a step forward, and Albert turned towards him. And you too, said he. Come if you like, monsieur. You have a claim, being almost one of the family, and I will give as many rendezvous of that kind as I can find persons willing to accept them. Cavalcanti looked at Danglars with a stupefied air, and the latter, making an effort, arose and stepped between the two young men. Albert's attack on Andrea had placed him on a different footing, and he hoped this visit had another cause than that he had first supposed. "'Indeed, sir,' said he to Albert, "'if you are come to quarrel with this gentleman because I have preferred him to you, I shall resign the case to the king's attorney.' "'You mistake, sir,' said Morcerf with a gloomy smile. I'm not referring in the least to matrimony, and I only address myself to Monsieur Cavalcanti because he appeared disposed to interfere between us. In one respect, 
you are right for i am ready to quarrel with everyone to-day but you have the first claim monsieur danglars sir replied danglars pale with anger and fear i warn you when i have the misfortune to meet with a mad dog i kill it and far from thinking myself guilty of a crime i believe i do society a kindness now if you are mad and try to bite me i will kill you without pity is it my fault that your father has dishonoured himself yes miserable wretch cried morcerf it is your fault danglars retreated a few steps my fault said he you must be mad what do i know of the grecian affair have i travelled in that country did i advise your father to sell the castle of janina to betray silence said albert with a thundering voice no it is not you who have directly made this exposure and brought this sorrow on us but you hypocritically provoked it i yes you how came it known i suppose you read it in the paper on the account from janina who wrote to janina to janina yes who wrote for particulars concerning my father i imagine any one may write to janina but one person only wrote one only yes and that was you i doubtless wrote it appears to me that when about to marry your daughter to a young man it is right to make some inquiries respecting his family it is not only a right but a duty you wrote sir knowing what answer you would receive i indeed i assure you cried danglars with a confidence and security proceeding less from fear than from the interest he really felt for the young man i solemnly declare to you that i should never have thought of writing to janina did i know anything of ali pasha's misfortunes who then urged you to write tell me pardieu it was the most simple thing in the world i was speaking of your father's past history i said the origin of his fortune remained obscure the person to whom i addressed my scruples asked me where your father had acquired his property i answered in greece then said he write to janina and who thus advised you no other than your friend monte cristo the count of monte cristo told you to write to janina yes and i wrote and will show you my correspondence if you like albert and beauchamp looked at each other sir said beauchamp who had not yet spoken you appear to accuse the count who is absent from paris at this moment and cannot justify himself i accuse no one sir said danglars i relate and i will repeat before the count what i have said to you does the count know what answer you received yes i showed it to him did he know my father's christian name was fernand and his family name mondego yes i had told him that long since and i did only what any other would have done in my circumstances and perhaps less when the day after the arrival of this answer your father came by the advice of monte cristo to ask my daughter's hand for you i decidedly refused him but without any explanation or exposure in short 
why should I have any more to do with the affair? How did the honour or disgrace of Monsieur de Morcerf affect me? It neither increased nor decreased my income. Albert felt the blood mounting to his brow. There was no doubt upon the subject. Danglars defended himself with the baseness, but at the same time with the assurance of a man who speaks the truth, at least in part, if not wholly, not for conscience's sake, but through fear. Besides, what was Morcerf seeking? It was not whether Danglars or Monte Cristo was more or less guilty. It was a man who would answer for the offence, whether trifling or serious. It was a man who would fight, and it was evident Danglars would not fight. And in addition to this, everything forgotten or unperceived before presented itself now to his recollection. Monte Cristo knew everything, as he had bought the daughter of Ali Pasha, and knowing everything, he had advised Danglars to write to Yanina. The answer known, he had yielded to Albert's wish to be introduced to Haiti, and allowed the conversation to turn on the death of Ali, and had not opposed Haiti's recital. But having doubtless warned the young girl in the few Romaic words he spoke to her, not to implicate Morcerf's father. Besides, had he not begged of Morcerf not to mention his father's name before Haiti? Lastly, he had taken Albert to Normandy when he knew the final blow was near. There could be no doubt that all had been calculated and previously arranged. Monte Cristo, then, was in league with his father's enemies. Albert took Beauchamp aside and communicated these ideas to him. "'You are right,' said the latter. "'Monsieur Danglars has only been a secondary agent in this sad affair, and it is of Monsieur de Monte Cristo that you must demand an explanation.' Albert turned. "'Sir,' said he to Danglars, "'understand that I do not take a final leave of you. I must ascertain if your insinuations are just.' and I am going now to inquire of the Count of Monte Cristo. He bowed to the banker, and went out with Beauchamp, without appearing to notice Cavalcanti. Danglars accompanied him to the door, where he again assured Albert that no motive of personal hatred had influenced him against the Count of Morcerf. End of chapter 87《Chapter 88 of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 88 The Insult. At the banker's door, Beauchamp stopped Morcerf. Listen, said he, just now I told you it was of Monsieur de Monte Cristo you must demand an explanation. Yes, and we are going to his house. Reflect, Morcerf. One moment before you go. On what shall I reflect? On the importance of the step you are taking. Is it more serious than going to Monsieur Danglars? Yes. Monsieur Danglars is a money lover, and those who love money, you know, think too much of what they risk to be easily induced to fight a duel. The other is, on the contrary to all appearance, a true nobleman. But do you not fear to find him a bully? I only fear one thing, namely, to find a man who will not fight. Do not be alarmed, said Beauchamp. He will meet you. My only fear is that you will be too strong for you. 
"'My friend,' said Morcerf, with a sweet smile, "'that is what I wish. "'The happiest thing that could occur to me "'would be to die in my father's stead. "'That would save us all.' "'Your mother would die of grief.' "'My poor mother,' said Albert, "'passing his hand across his eyes. "'I know she would. "'But better so than die of shame.' "'Are you quite decided, Albert?' "'Yes. Let us go.' "'But do you think we shall find the Count at home?' "'He intended returning home some hours after me, "'and doubtless he is now at home.' "'They ordered the driver to take them to number 30 Champs-Élysées. "'Beauchamp wished to go in alone, "'but Albert observed that as this was an unusual circumstance, he might be allowed to deviate from the usual etiquette in affairs of honour. The cause which the young man espoused was one so sacred that Beauchamp had only to comply with all his wishes. He yielded and contented himself with following Morcerf. Albert sprang from the porter's lodge to the steps. He was received by Baptistin. The Count had indeed just arrived, but he was in his bath, and had forbidden that any one should be admitted. "'But after his bath?' asked Morcerf. "'My master will go to dinner.' "'And after dinner?' "'He will sleep an hour.' "'Then?' "'He is going to the opera.' "'Are you sure of it?' asked Albert. "'Quite, sir. My master has ordered his horses at eight o'clock precisely.' "'Very good,' replied Albert. "'That is all I wish to know.' Then, turning towards Beauchamp, "'If you have anything to attend to, Beauchamp, do it directly. "'If you have any appointment for this evening, defer it till tomorrow. "'I depend on you to accompany me to the opera, "'and if you can, bring Chateau Renaud with you.' "'Beauchamp availed himself of Albert's permission and left him, "'promising to call for him at a quarter before eight. "'On his return home, Albert expressed his wish to Franz de Bray and Morel to see them at the opera that evening. Then he went to see his mother, who, since the events of the day before, had refused to see anyone, and had kept her room. He found her in bed, overwhelmed with grief at this public humiliation. The sight of Albert produced the effect which might naturally be expected on Mercedes. She pressed her son's hand and sobbed aloud, but her tears relieved her. Albert stood one moment speechless by the side of his mother's bed. It was evident from his pale face and knit brows that his resolution to revenge himself was growing weaker. "'My dear mother,' said he, "'do you know if Monsieur de Morcerf has any enemy?' Mercedes started. She noticed that the young man did not say, "'My father.' "'My son,' she said, Persons in the Count's situation have many secret enemies. Those who are known are not the most dangerous. I know it, and appeal to your penetration. You are of so superior mind, nothing escapes you. Why did you say so? Because, for instance, you noticed on the evening of the ball we gave that Monsieur de Monte Cristo would eat nothing in our house. Mercedes raised herself on her feverish arm. "'Monsieur de Monte Cristo, she exclaimed. "'And how is he connected with the question you asked me?' "'You know, mother, 
Monsieur de Monte Cristo is almost an Oriental, and it is customary with the Orientals to secure full liberty for revenge by not eating or drinking in the houses of their enemies. Do you say Monsieur de Monte Cristo is our enemy? replied Mercedes, becoming paler than the sheet which covered her. Who told you so? Why, you are mad, Albert. Monsieur de Monte Cristo has only shown us kindness. Monsieur de Monte Cristo saved your life. You yourself presented him to us. Oh, I entreat you, my son, if you had entertained such an idea, dispel it. And my counsel to you, nay, my, my prayer, is to retain his friendship. Mother, replied the young man, you have a special reasons for telling me to conciliate the man. I, said Mercedes, blushing as rapidly as she had turned pale, and again became paler than ever. Yes, doubtless, and is it not that he may never do us any harm? Mercedes shuddered, and fixing on her son a scrutinizing gaze. You speak strangely, said she to Albert, and you appear to have some singular prejudices. What has the Count done? Three days since you were with him in Normandy, only three days since we looked on him as our best friend. An ironical smile passed over Albert's lips. Mercedes saw it, and with the double instinct of woman and mother guessed all. But as she was prudent and strong-minded, she concealed both her sorrows and her fears. Albert was silent. An instant after, the Countess resumed. "'You came to inquire after my health. I will candidly acknowledge that I am not well. You should install yourself here and cheer my solitude. I do not wish to be left alone.' "'Mother,' said the young man, "'you know how gladly I would obey your wish. But an urgent and important affair obliges me to leave you for the whole evening.' "'Well,' replied Mercedes, sighing, "'go, Albert. I will not make you a slave to your filial piety.' Albert pretended he did not hear, bowed to his mother, and quitted her. Scarcely had he shut her door, when Mercedes called a confidential servant and ordered him to follow Albert wherever he should go that evening, and to come and tell her immediately what he observed. Then she rang for her lady's maid, and, weak as she was, she dressed, in order to be ready for whatever might happen. The footman's mission was an easy one. Albert went to his room, and dressed with unusual care. At ten minutes to eight, Beauchamp arrived. He had seen Chateau Renaud, who had promised to be in the orchestra before the curtain was raised. Both got into Albert's coupé, and as the young man had no reason to conceal where he was going, he called aloud, "'To the opera!' In his impatience, he arrived before the beginning of the performance. Chateau Renaud was at his post, apprised by Beauchamp of the circumstances. He required no explanation from Albert. The conduct of the son in seeking to avenge his father was so natural that Chateau Renaud did not seek to dissuade him, and was content with renewing his assurances of devotion. Debray was not yet come but Albert knew that he seldom lost a scene at the opera. Albert wandered about the theatre until the curtain was drawn up. He hoped to meet with Monsieur de Monte Cristo, either in the lobby or on the stairs. The bell summoned him to his seat, 
and he entered the orchestra with Chateau Renaud and Beauchamp. But his eyes scarcely quitted the box between the columns, which remained obstinately closed during the whole of the first act. At last, as Albert was looking at his watch for about the hundredth time, at the beginning of the second act, the door opened, and Monte Cristo entered, dressed in black, and leaning over the front of the box, looked around the pit. Morel followed him, and looked also for his sister and brother-in-law. He soon discovered them in another box, and kissed his hand to them. The Count, in his survey of the pit, encountered a pale face and threatening eyes, which evidently sought to gain his attention. He recognized Albert, but thought it better not to notice him as he looked so angry and discomposed. Without communicating his thoughts to his companion, he sat down, drew out his opera-glass, and looked another way. Although apparently not noticing Albert, he did not, however, lose sight of him. And when the curtain fell at the end of the second act, he saw him leave the orchestra with his two friends. Then his head was seen passing at the back of the boxes, and the Count knew that the approaching storm was intended to fall on him. He was at the moment conversing cheerfully with Morel, but he was well prepared for what might happen. The door opened, and Monte Cristo, turning around, saw Albert, pale and trembling, followed by Beauchamp and Chateau Renaud. "'Well,' cried he, with that benevolent politeness which distinguished his salutation from the common civilities of the world, "'my cavalier has attained his object. Good evening, Monsieur de Morcerf.' The countenance of this man, who possessed such extraordinary control over his feelings, expressed the most perfect cordiality. Morel only then recollected the letter he had received from the Viscount, in which, without assigning any reason, he begged him to go to the opera. But he understood that something terrible was brooding. "'We are not come here, sir, to exchange hypocritical expressions of politeness.' or false professions of friendship, said Albert, but do demand an explanation. The young man's trembling voice was scarcely audible. An explanation at the opera, said the Count, with that calm tone and penetrating eye which characterize the man who knows his cause is good. Little acquainted as I am with the habits of Parisians, I should not have thought this the place for such a demand. "'Still, if people will shut themselves up,' said Albert, "'and cannot be seen, because they are bathing, dining, or asleep, "'we must avail ourselves of the opportunity whenever they are to be seen.' "'I am not difficult of access, sir, "'for yesterday, if my memory does not deceive me, "'you were at my house.' "'Yesterday I was at your house, sir,' said the young man, "'because then—' I knew not who you were. In pronouncing these words, Albert had raised his voice so as to be heard by those in the adjoining boxes and in the lobby. Thus the attention of many was attracted by his altercation. Where are you come from, sir? You do not appear to be in the possession of your senses. Provided I understand your perfidy, sir, and succeed in making you understand that I will be revenged. I shall be reasonable enough, said Albert furiously. 
"'I do not understand you, sir,' replied Monte Cristo. "'And if I did, your tone is too high. I am at home here, and I alone have a right to raise my voice above another's. Leave the box, sir.' Monte Cristo pointed towards the door with the most commanding dignity. "'Ah, I shall know how to make you leave your home,' replied Albert, clasping in his convulsed grasp the glove which Monte Cristo did not lose sight of. "'Well, well,' said Monte Cristo quietly, "'I see you wish to quarrel with me. But I would give you one piece of advice, which you will do well to keep in mind. It is in poor taste to make a display of a challenge. Display is not becoming to everyone, Monsieur de Morcerf.' At this name, a murmur of astonishment passed around the group of spectators of this scene. They had talked of no one but Morcerf the whole day. Albert understood the allusion in a moment, and was about to throw his glove at the Count when Morel seized his hand, while Beauchamp and Chateau Renaud, fearing the scene would surpass the limits of a challenge, held him back. But Monte Cristo, without rising, and leaning forward in his chair, merely stretched out his arm and taking the damp crushed glove from the clinched hand of the young man sir said he in a solemn tone i consider your glove thrown and will return it to you wrapped around a bullet now leave me or i will summon my servants to throw you out the door wild almost unconscious and with eyes inflamed albert stepped back and morel closed the door Monte Cristo took up his glass again, as if nothing had happened. His face was like marble, and his heart was like bronze. Morel whispered, "'What have you done to him?' "'I? Nothing, at least personally,' said Monte Cristo. "'But there must be some cause for this strange scene. "'The Count of Morcerf's adventure exasperates the young man. "'Have you anything to do with it?' It was through Haiti that the chamber was informed of his father's treason. Indeed, said Morel, I had been told, but would not credit it, that the Grecian slave I have seen with you here in this very box was the daughter of Ali Pasha. It is true, nevertheless. Then, said Morel, I understand it all, and this scene was premeditated. How so? Yes. Albert wrote to request me to come to the opera, doubtless that I might be a witness to the insult he meant to offer you. Probably, said Monte Cristo with his imperturbable tranquillity. But what shall you do with him? With whom? With Albert. What shall I do with Albert? As certainly, Maximilian, as I now press your hand, I shall kill him before ten o'clock tomorrow morning. Morel, in his turn, took Monte Cristo's hand in both of his, and he shuddered to feel how cold and steady it was. "'Ah, oh, Count,' said he, "'his father loves him so much.' "'Do not speak to me of that,' said Monte Cristo, with the first movement of anger he had betrayed. "'I will make him suffer.' Morel, amazed, let fall Monte Cristo's hand. "'Count, Count,' said he, "'Dear Maximilian,' interrupted the Count, "'listen how adorably Dupre is singing that line. "'O Mathilde, idole de mon âme, 
I was the first to discover Dupre at Naples, and the first to applaud him. Bravo, bravo! Morel saw it was useless to say more, and refrained. The curtain which had risen at the close of the scene with Albert again fell, and a rap was heard at the door. Come in, said Monte Cristo with a voice that betrayed not the least emotion, and immediately Beauchamp appeared. Good evening, Monsieur Beauchamp, said Monte Cristo, as if this was the first time he had seen the journalist that evening. Be seated. Beauchamp bowed, and sitting down, Sir, said he, I just now accompanied Monsieur de Morcerf, as you saw. And that means, replied Monte Cristo, laughing, that you had probably just dined together. I am happy to see, Monsieur Beauchamp, that you are more sober than he was. Sir, said Monsieur Beauchamp, Albert was wrong. I acknowledge to betray so much anger, and I come on my own account to apologize for him, and having done so entirely on my own account, be it understood, I would add that I believe you too gentlemanly to refuse giving him some explanation concerning your connection with Janina. Then I will add two words about the young Greek girl. Monte Cristo motioned him to be silent. Come, said he, laughing, there are all my hopes about to be destroyed. How so? asked Beauchamp. Doubtless you wish to make me appear a very eccentric character. I am, in your opinion, a Lara, a Manfred, a Lord Ruthven. Then, just as I am arriving at the climax, you defeat your own end and seek to make an ordinary man of me. You bring me down to your own level and demand explanations. Indeed, Monsieur Beauchamp, it is quite laughable. Yet, replied Beauchamp haughtily, there are occasions when probity commands. Monsieur Beauchamp, interposed this strange man, the Count of Monte Cristo bows to none but the Count of Monte Cristo himself. Say no more. I entreat you. I do what I please, Monsieur Beauchamp, and it is always well done. Sir, replied the young man, Honest men are not to be paid with such coin. I require honourable guarantees. I am, sir, a living guarantee, replied Monte Cristo, motionless, but with a threatening look. We have both blood in our veins which we wish to shed. That is our mutual guarantee. Tell the Viscount so, and that to-morrow before ten o'clock I shall see what colour he is." "'Then I have only to make arrangements for the duel,' said Beauchamp. "'It is quite immaterial to me,' said Monte Cristo, "'and it was very unnecessary to disturb me at the opera for such a trifle. "'In France people fight with the sword or pistol, "'in the colonies with the carbine, in Arabia with the dagger. "'Tell your client that although I am the insulted party, "'in order to carry out my eccentricity, I leave him the choice of arms, and will accept without discussion, without dispute, anything, even combat by drawing lots, which is always stupid, but with me different from other people, as I am sure to gain. Sure to gain? repeated Beauchamp, looking with amazement at the Count. Certainly, said Monte Cristo, slightly shrugging his shoulders. Otherwise I would not fight with Monsieur de Morcerf. I shall kill him. I cannot help it. 
only by a single line this evening at my house let me know the arms and the hour i do not like to be kept waiting pistols then at eight o'clock in the bois de vincennes said beauchamp quite disconcerted not knowing if he was dealing with an arrogant braggadocio or a supernatural being very well sir said monte cristo now all that is settled do let me see the performance and tell your friend albert not to come any more this evening he will hurt himself with all his ill-chosen barbarisms let him go home and go to sleep beauchamp left the box perfectly amazed now said monte cristo turning towards morel i may depend upon you may i not certainly said morel i am at your service count still what it is desirable i should know the real cause that is to say you would rather not no the young man himself is acting blindfolded and knows not the true cause which is known only to god and to me but i give you my word morel that god who does know it will be on our side enough said morel who is your second witness i know no one in paris morel on whom i could confer that honor besides you and your brother emmanuel do you think emmanuel would oblige me i will answer for him count well that is all i require to-morrow morning at seven o'clock you will be with me will you not we will hush the curtain is rising listen i never lose a note of this opera if i can avoid it the music of william tell is so sweet End of chapter 88